This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello and welcome to Your Book, the podcast for literary nosy parkers. I'm your book inspector, Daisy Buchanan. If you're listening to this on Monday the 20th of February, I'm about to start teaching my creative fiction class, Write Like a Reader, this Sunday, and there are a couple of spaces left. It's the last time I'll teach this course before the autumn. There are five sessions all over Zoom, and the course is designed to boost your confidence, help you to navigate the fear, and show you that you already have every skill you need to write brilliant fiction. Email creativeconfidenceclinic at gmail.com if you'd like more information. My new novel, Limelight, a story of sisterhood, sexuality and self-esteem, is out in June. If you pre-order it in hardback from the brilliant bookshop.org, you'll be entered into a prize draw and you could win the chance to be a guest on this podcast. If sharing your shelves with listeners does not appeal, another fantastic prize will be arranged. My novel Careering, a romantic comedy about our unrequited passion for work and why it will never love us back, a BBC Sounds book club pick, is out in paperback on the 9th of March. Now, on to today's guest... Eva Rice has already been on this podcast a lot, because a lot of our guests are big fans of hers. Her book, The Lost Art of Keeping Secrets, has legendary status. It's a modern classic. I've wanted to get Eva on the podcast since we started, so I'm very happy that she's here. We're celebrating the publication of her wonderful new novel, This Could Be Everything. It's the 90s, we're in Notting Hill, Bruno Brooks is counting down the top 40, and February Kingdom is crushed by grief, searching for hope, and finding it with a boy named Theo and a misfit called Plato. This episode also has some exciting bonus content. Eva has written some music to go with the book, and we'll be hearing it at the end of the podcast. We're also talking about Eva's upcoming musical, Julie Cooper adaptation. I'm so excited about that. And also how her father, lyricist Sir Tim Rice, has influenced her reading and her writing. I hope you enjoy. So many things that I want to talk to you about. And well, I was thinking about, I suppose, this could be everything and the fabulous February Kingdom, our heroine, our protagonist. And I'd love to know in the very early 90s, what were you reading? You know, were you reading or were you busy buying records and listening to music and making music? Oh, I was always reading. I was always reading. Um, 
since sort of square one but I think the very early 90s I was thinking about this Mm. because of the book being set in 1990 and what I would have been reading then and I think the crucial book for me was Buddha of Suburbia at that point in history and that kind of completely blew my mind because I'm actually my character February is slightly older than I was in 1990 so I was 15 in 1990 and she's um she's a bit older so she's a few years older than me at, at that point and so she was sort of doing the things that I kind of wished I was doing at that point, like when she goes out to all the really cool clubs and that sort of thing. My exact era was probably more Britpop in the 90s. But what I like doing with my books, um, because of them usually being set in the past, is to go back to the period sort of just before something took off. So in Lost Art, I went back to just before rock and roll took off. And um, in... Tara Jupp, I went back to just before the Rolling Stones broke out and the Beatles arrived on the scene. So with this one, going back to 1990, which is such an interesting year anyway, it was kind of pre-Tony Blair, pre-Britpop, but there was a sense of something kind of uprising, but it was still the end of the 80s. And for me, Buddha Suburbia was something that seemed to, it was kind of both completely alien to me and totally relatable, which I think all the best fiction is. Because there were characters who felt so cool and so kind of way out of my, um, the kind of people I would have hung out with. But at the same time, there was something unbelievably tangible about it. The Londonness of it and the kind of, the sort of dirt of it and the glamour of it. Um, so yeah, that I think as, in terms of early 90s reading, that was one that really stuck with me and has continued to stick with me. I love that book and I've not read it since I was a teenager but I remember that that's it's almost like a sort of literary with nail and I where you're like oh yeah exactly that's such a good description of it. I know this world beat by beat I can feel every kind of you know gram of it but also it does have that thrilling subversive strange familiar and strange all at once. So I was thinking as well without giving too much away that February for all kinds of you know powerful reasons isn't live is she 18 when the book starts yes 17 18. so she she's she's actually she's actually 18 19 um and she's so so the the point the point of oh, i'm just so, so sorry my dog can you hear a noise because he's he's just coming to the room and he's rattling a hot water bottle around oh, i'm no, really I, sorry about don't that don't worry i can't actually hear a, a dog <laughs> hello he's um he's been very annoying he's trying to get my attention um I feel as though what I wanted to do was go, I thought if I went back right to the beginning of that decade, then I wouldn't get too bogged down by all the kind of, the, the sort of politics that came later and the whole sense of the kind of Britpop and the, the Cool Britannia thing. Um, so making her an age that was that kind of coming of age age, but right at the beginning of the decade was what I really wanted to do with, with her and with that character. And, and also having at the same time, this character who's much older of her aunt, who's in her mid forties, who is experiencing her vision of the early 90s is going to be completely different, but kind of bringing them together um, through the various things that happen in the plot, but also through the culture around them and through that bit of London and um, the music was really fun. I love that. And I love that idea that you can sort of... I think we we talked before about reading about music and it taking you back to that era of anticipating sound and guessing what things were going to be and not just being able to kind of press two buttons and be like, oh, that's what that is and kind of dreaming and imagining. Yeah. Um, Are there any other novels or like nonfiction books, memoir about music that you have really 
enjoy oh, John's latitude. Well, memoir-wise, without a slightest hesitation of doubt, in fact, probably my top five books of all time is Marianne Faithful's autobiography, which is called Faithful. And that came out, I think, also in... It might have been 90... No, I think it was maybe 1990 or could have been 91, but that was... And actually, my my mum had bought it, and and I saw the cover and thought, oh, that looks cool. And I sort of knew of her name, and I kind of knew of her association with the Rolling Stones. And I went through a big Rolling Stones phase at that point, probably just because I was in a band with lots of boys who liked the Stones, and so I kind of was into them. And then, of course, I went straight into the middle and looked at the photos. Who doesn't when you first pick up an autobiography? But then when I read it, I just thought, this is either she's making this up or this is the most ins- I mean I'd never read anything like it at that age that I was reading about what she was doing not not that long after my age at the time when she was in kind of her late teens early 20s and that book was such a powerful female story without without me even realizing that I was absorbing it on that level um in terms of what it was saying about being a woman at the time in the music industry but also it was so funny and so dry and so she has this amazing scene where she's um, she talks about Bob Dylan holding court at the height of his fame in London. And he came over and, you know, everyone was in the room with him and everyone wanted to be thought of as cool with him. And when he said something like, you know, can you pass me a spoon? People were kind of like, does he mean, does he pass? Can you pass me a spoon? What does he mean? What's he trying to say? And she kind of slightly um, with, without being condescending is just very funny about all these men in the industry. And, and so you get you get this absolute roller coaster ride, and she's she's not self pitying. She's just incredibly straight about what's happened to her in her life, and it just it's really it's one of those books I go back to time and time again if I feel like I need a kind of in fiction. I think it's it's quite good to go to non fiction sometimes for inspiration, and that really that's one that I always go back to. But I love what you said about how important it is that when people are funny, when it's a way of reclaiming power in quite a sort of a subtle and unexpected way. Uh, do you yes. have any other funny books? Uh, we should, must get to Jilly Cooper because I, oh, I think oh, there well, is a bit I mean, where yes. are people are walking down the street reading. Um, yes, yes, they've got they've got they're rivals. reading rivals. Yes, um, yeah, I had to obviously had to name drop Gillian <laughs> somewhere. That's the fun thing about writing fiction that says you know slightly historical that you can just kind of bung in all the stuff that you liked or remembered really clearly from that time but yeah funny books oh my gosh I mean um Barbara Pym who I've just been Mm. reading and I I can't believe how late in the day I've discovered her because uh, excellent women my brother gave it to me and I, I sort of knew of it but I'd never properly read it and I just it was so funny so unbelievably um subtly funny about the relationships between women and men and how the 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 main character is kind of quietly able to assess the entire population with kind of one remark that might seem incredibly um, light, but it isn't. And that's one of the things that I love as people who can do. In fact, I think it was AJ Pierce was saying this on your podcast a, a while ago, a few weeks ago, about how hard it is to do light and to do funny, but make it in its lightness have massive depth so that you can just have one sentence in Barbara Pym that you think, oh my God, that's just brilliant and you're just you're so pleased because it's so funny it's just so I love that absolutely brilliant and also I love Nina Stibby recently I thought that book was absolutely hilarious um everything she does but yeah I I think finding finding funny stuff in the lightest situations that you can you know give real gravitas to is the most an incredible talent one that I'm always trying to do (laughs) 
Because, I mean, I think you absolutely do it and do it beautifully, but I think that's so, what's so lifelike, isn't it? And I've never thought of this, but, you know, I think maybe Nina Stibby is um, Barbara Pym's heir. And, because that's what oh, people totally. do. When awful things happen in real life, people make jokes about them. People take yeah. the darkest and most complicated things and they see the lightness in them. Then there's, you know, sort of something beneath and something... Yeah. Implied. But um, was that uh, One Day I Shall Astonish the World? Well, actually, weirdly, when I was, when I was talking just now, I was actually thinking of Love, Nina, because I was ah. thinking of, although I have read the others, but I was thinking about that being that being nonfiction, but how it, how those kind of, you know, the little asides from Alan Bennett and stuff mm. and how brilliantly they, and they're incredibly English as well. It's a very particular English humour that I think it was incredible in that book. Just absolutely brilliant. Love her. Yeah. And I think actually when I'm writing fiction to read funny stuff is sort of all I can cope with in a way. Because I don't know about you. I mean, I think you might have had this conversation with OJ as well about that thing of, oh, I can't read anything because it's just going to make me feel like I'm A, terrible or a, ter- a terrible writer or B, you know, I'm, I'm in writing completely the wrong style and I've just got to change my style now and just be more like this person. So I do find it quite off-putting. So I think if you're reading something that is just is funny and does funny brilliantly, it can somehow set you back on the right track. I don't quite know why that works with me, but it does. I love that. I think maybe it's a bit like writing poetry because when someone gets the rhythm right, that's what's dazzling. And it can, I think, sharpen you up and change the way you feel about language and influence you, but hopefully in a good way. I I agree. Actually, speaking of poetry, I was... (laughs) My um, my brother sent me a Ted Hughes poem the other day because I love Ted Hughes and I actually reference him in, in This Could Be Everything as well. And he was one of my A-level poet, poets, you know. And at the time, I remember feeling, as you do when you're doing English A-level and you're kind of, you're getting it on some level, but you just haven't got the the life experience to totally grasp what's going on. And I feel like I only really came back to my, my A-level text much later and went, oh my God, that was so good. Why didn't I realise how good it was at the time? And... Um, Ted Hughes is one that I've come back to, you know, reasonably recently and just thought that is that is kind of incredible that that poetry. Gosh, he's good. And Tom Gunn, we did as well, who was another one that I've rediscovered and just at the time did not appreciate how brilliant he was. So, yeah, maybe poetry is one of those things that you sort of get on a very surface level when you're learning it. And, you know, as an 18 year old, and then you suddenly go back and go, oh, gosh, that's good. Oh, I love Tom Gunn. And I just stumbled yeah. across him through a friend. And I think if I'd been taught him and maybe taught, because some of the poems I immediately, I really feel, and some take a little bit more careful reading. But yes. that sort of, when you've got someone saying, this is what the language is doing. And I think the way it's taught at school, and I think I was really, really lucky with the teaching I had. And it was, it's discipline, I think, to yes. read it and be yes. taught it when you're 18. And that's, a really really good grounding and it's really helpful and useful to know kind of what to look for and you know what the techniques are and how how things are linked and the fact that when T.S. Eliot says April's the cruelest month he's you know nodding at Chaucer um, yeah it's so true it's I, I think I think if you can get even if you pick up just a few things when you're kind of 18 19 or whatever and you then come back to it and go oh now I get it but mm-hmm weirdly actually my my dad um just bringing him up and because of this particular topic he he was when he was writing um I can't I, I think it was oh well it must have been oh I know it was it was in um be prepared in the Lion King and it's got a line where Scar the lion goes of course quid pro quo you're expected to take certain duties on board 
And he always says that at the time, the Disney guys sort of went, oh, I don't know if kids will understand what that means. And, and he said, just leave it in. Because the whole point is they won't understand what it means. And then they'll realise 10 years later what that phrase means. And it's a bit like with lyrics when you overhear, when you're kind of listening to lyrics when you're, you know, 12 and you sing completely the wrong words, and you don't really get it. And then suddenly you realise in your mid-20s what the actual line is. Quite often you then go back to your original line and think, I think I prefer my version. <laughs> but it's just that well, thing of hearing words differently. I am going to tell you something um, that I wasn't <laughs> sure whether or not to mention to be a sort of, you know, intense um, fangirl. But I loved musicals with a deep and abiding passion and um, especially, especially Evita. And oh, I did right, go to see it and I did go to school on non-uniform day and defeat a baseball cap and sweatshirt. I was the only one oh, in my class. come on, that is adorable. Um, but I also, <laughs> there was a brownie concert and I sang Don't Cry For Me, Argentina. And with some help no. from my mum and my auntie, I was sort of dressed as Ava Perón. I had a chignon and big earrings. Um, and my parents teased me mercilessly because the line couldn't spend all my life, um, couldn't stay all my life down at heel. And I thought the line was down a tin and it was maybe something to do with like the sort of tin shacks in South America and poor housing <laughs> conditions. But actually that is not a bad line. Come on. Couldn't well, spend all my life down a tin. I, I understand why you were thinking that. And now I, that's how I learned what down at heel means. <laughs> that so is so valuable. funny. That is it. I, I mean, the idea of, of, of a little girl dressed as Eva Perron doing that song is on so many levels. It's just, it's, it's just great. I love that. It's the campus thing, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Well, it is, of course. And, and actually, what's, what's amazing about that song is that it's, it's kind of supposed to be a string of cliches and it's a political statement rather than having anything that's got, you know, great meaning to it. Which is why it's interesting that it was such a massive hit as a record because it's kind of a string of political cliches to to rouse a mob and prove that it's a lot of the time it's about style over substance. Um, so that is amazing that your miniature self grasped that idea. And it's just a great tune. It's a good tune. I'm not sure I did, to be honest, get the um, the subtlety and the the wit no, but it, but, and but, but, but the irony. Uh, but the um, yeah, the, the the tune was enough to um, to get you there. I think that's that's a brilliant. I love that. <laughs> but yeah, that was um, you know one of the um, my my favourite books was the, um, the the lyrics in my special. <laughs> oh, double. that is that is brilliant. That is brilliant. Because it's because that show has to say so much in such a short space of time. It's very wordy, and I often think maybe that's actually especially with this book. With, with this could be everything. Um, somebody said to me that it's a, it reads a bit like a kind of <laughs> like a, a bit like like a panic attack from start to finish because it's so fast. And I think maybe some of that comes from growing up with somebody writing something that you you need to get from A to B very quickly and you know, not waste any words. So maybe that's where that's where that's coming oh, from. Oh, that's really interesting. <laughs> because I thought that, you know, sort of February's always in you know, because she's had so much chaos to deal with. Yeah. Obsessively trying to control her world. Yes. And that's yes. you know where she's sort of so manic. But a book that comes up quite a lot on this podcast and I don't think it's always me bringing it up is um the Sundime book, uh Finishing the Hat about oh, yes. lyric writing. I don't know yes. if you come across I, that one I, I i haven't actually read that but i mean obviously he's completely brilliant and um oh, actually speaking of books about um lyricists i read alan j Lerner's 
um, autobiography, which was extraordinary. I think wordsmiths being given the freedom to write a book and to talk about their work, as in lyricists, is is completely fascinating, or poets, because the the whole process is so different to writing novels, and um, especially when you're involved with very, very pure rhymes, and that that leads everything into a really exciting, completely different space, which is, uh, yeah, I, I kind of love Lin-Manuel Miranda for that reason, that the rhymes within rhymes within kind of rhymes. Um, I was just thinking of that bit. Have you seen Hamilton? Yes. The bit in <laughs> Washington on your side where th- there's that line, if there's a fire you're trying to douse, you can't put it out from inside the house. <laughs> and I was just thinking, oh, he must have been so smug to think, <laughs> douse, house, I've got it. Oh, that is a good day got, at the office. It's really good. And he's got that sense of being, of galloping through from start to finish and just getting from A to B so quickly. But kind of these little sort of, it's almost like sort of Super Mario Land when you land on a thing and it explodes and you go, wow, there's another brilliant one there. There's another brilliant one there. Um, so yeah, the, the great, the great lyricists have always been my, in my, you know, in my head, um, def- desperately trying to to figure out why they were great and what they did. Oh, that learning book sounds fantastic. I'm going to it's be really good. It's all really over good. that. Yes. Um, can we talk about Harriet? Yes, of course we can talk about Harriet. <laughs> I mean, always. So, as a member of the Jilly Cooper Book Club, um, I had heard whispers and rumours about this very, very exciting project, and I think we we're all sort of hoping that it's going to happen. So. What can you tell us? Well, it, it, we, I, had, oh, I had this idea. Basically, I, I read, because I mean, obviously being a massive Jilly fan, and Harriet was one of the pre-riders novels that I thought was just so utterly addictive. I just remember reading it over and over again, this, this idea of this, um, this girl uh, heading up to Yorkshire with a baby and ending up working for this incredibly grumpy um, writer and and what happens to her and, and it has the usual jilly wit and unbelievable insight and she which she kind of throws away in one line and you suddenly think oh how's she done that she's so good and gifted at writing these gorgeous heroines they're incredibly vulnerable and you really really root for them and they are in the hands of another writer they just be a bit wet which isn't a crude jilly pun um they so just absolutely <laughs> Hey, it's true um, very good they then go on to do something incredibly courageous but in the sort of when it's very very fashionable to have you know these sort of unlikable heroines and these you know strong women and I love them because you wouldn't describe them as strong but they're certainly not weak and you do just love them and they do have a sort of and not delicate or frail exactly but they do just seem you know, young and uncertain in a way that, and I think that's why I love them so much growing up and why I love them so much now, that, you know, yeah. you, sort of, you root for them so hard. So hard. And there, it's exactly the, the likableness of these characters is so great. And with Harriet, um, there's the brilliant scenes when, she, when she's in Oxford at the beginning and she's squeezing herself into her jeans and, um, and washing her hair, but thinking for her tutor, thinking, well, he wasn't that attractive. Did she need to wash her hair for him? And just these brilliant, um, frankly, timeless um, insights into into that way of thinking. And wh- when you're at university, and then and then Harriet herself gets kind of catapulted into this into this crazy world that she knows nothing about, um, 
before and and so anyway the idea behind uh doing Harriet on stage was to was to write it as a musical so it's written and it's kind of ready to go and we're um we're hoping that it's going to be coming to theatres probably starting outside of London which would be ideal because I think that's where a lot of Ginny's audience is and then and then coming into London at some point but um, yeah, it's it's all it's all happening. I hope, and it's um, Jilly is excited about it as well. In fact, we're seeing her next week, and she's obviously the complete dream person to be involved with in any situation. Although I have such terrible um, star-struck anxiety in her presence that it's you know it takes me a while. It's a bit of deep breathing before you can go and meet her, and. <laughs> And because I've I, I've kind of got to know her through writing her fan letters, because every time a book of hers came out, I'd be so glued to it. And and that's how that's how I got to know her. She I just write to her and tell her how brilliant she was. Prolific, prolific correspondent. My friend yes. Lucinda wrote something about her for The Telegraph years ago. Something you know, lovely. And or maybe it was a review of possibly Jump. Yeah. And Lucinda got a letter and I was like, oh. I am so jealous I could murder you and I, I would know. go to jail for it. And I'm gonna... But now I've had the, the great enormous pleasure and I get um, occasional jilly mail. And it just, oh, it makes the you jilly think, mail is the best. Whenever you're dying of jealousy, when someone's got something <laughs> you so desperately want, it, it might come good. It might be literally in the post for you. It literally in the post. It's the best thing ever with her, with her right handwriting that she admits no one can actually read. So you get, and, and, and it's always on a sort of slight slope and it just looks like the most writerly exciting envelope you're ever going to receive in your life. Um, one year she sent me a Valentine's card, which was the sweetest thing ever. Um, and, and there's always some kind of dog reference in there as well. She's just the absolute best. And the thing with Harriet, what, what, what we've loved about it is that it's just been so much fun because Jilly is in absolutely everything. So she's in, you know, every line of the script we've, 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 Obviously, we, we can't we can't put in every line of the book, but but we're keeping the absolute essence of Gillian in the whole thing. And um, it's just it's just been so much fun, so much fun to do from the word go. And, and to bring the characters to life with song has just been it's just been absolutely brilliant. So we've got. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's like a real um, in terms of what you shouldn't be trying to put on stage, horses, dogs and children. We've you know, it's the, the full Monty. Um, but that is so much fun. And. The only kind of real change we made is that the in um in the beginning the character of Simon who who Harriet falls in love with and mm. then ends up becoming pregnant with him. She in the book he's um he's an aspiring actor and for this we've made him an aspiring singer ah. so that it's just kind of more easily translatable onto the stage which which Jilly loves and that's worked really well. So he's a kind of um we've set it still in the era that it's written so it's mid seventies and he's a kind of sort of sting bono type figure who's um breaking hearts all over oxford which is just so fun oh because that challenge isn't how to have him so he is a believable and compelling love interest but also yes. clearly a wrong one. Oh, of course but weirdly i mean I, everyone knows that man everyone knows that boy who are your favorite literary love interests and are there any literary cads? Maybe I know I'm not supposed to like them, but oh, I do. Oh gosh! Oh, that's such a good question. Well, I mean, the obvious, the obvious Jilly answer is Rupert Campbell Black, but I mean, everyone would say him. Um, I'm just trying to think beyond beyond Jilly in that <laughs> sense. I'm not. I'm not sure they're my, they're necessarily my. He's necessarily my favourite cad. But in terms of love interests, I mean, I have to say, 
it's got to be um, Mellors in Lady Shatley's Lover, ah. which is because D.H. Lawrence, I've, I, I, he's, he's the one who, who, if I read him, I get totally sidelined by the style and think, oh, God, it's so good. And how does he get away with repeating sentences with loads of exclamation marks in the middle and somehow making that just utterly brilliant? And I think Mellors, his, his sort of otherworldliness and his... Um, the 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 kind of the lack of of dialogue, mm. the the lack of chat that you get for him, you just get this this figure that I think everyone who reads that book has their own version of him, and it isn't necessarily um, even though he's he's written as one thing. I think everyone has him maybe in their head in a, in their own. He's he's like the ultimate opposite to whatever your life is, I suppose, and wh- whatever whatever you know, you don't have to be Lady Chatterley to understand what he's trying to do with that. So he was one that I remember reading and thinking, oh, gosh, you know, that's pretty interesting. So I worked at uh, Bliss magazine when Twilight hit. And oh, oh, well, come on. Then later, when Fifty Shades of Grey came mm. a phenomenon. And I was really, really interested in this idea that Bella is written for teenage girls to be. Yes, She's yes. deliberately left blank. And I thought you know, whatever one thinks the vampires, which is, you know, not for me, for lots of people, <laughs> that's a very smart way to kind of get your readers on side. But I love that G.H. Lawrence was doing that with Mellors, that it's just this glorious fantasy space. I'm not sure that would have been his, in- his intention. I'm sure there was a lot more going on Lady Chatterley's other that he was thinking about beyond the kind of, um, is Mellors uh, the, um, I don't know, the, the Harry Styles of his day. But I feel like... <laughs> Somehow there was something about him for me. But I was I was just so obsessed with pop that, you know, I, I, most of my kind of teen obsessions were the, the kind of centre pages of smash hits or whatever. And actually even now, because my daughter is hugely into into kind of pop and rock and she writes songs herself. And we went to see Youngblood, who is who I probably wouldn't have known or particularly if it wasn't for her. And that was a real eye-opener first of all because I was you know 20 years older than most of the audience but also just that thing of of standing there and watching someone at work who's you know really knows what he's doing and has this incredible relationship with his audience and is um is very kind of dark and beautiful in his in his what he's what he's doing but at the same time is there's there's this safety about it as well which I think you look for also maybe in literary heroes as well you kind of want to know that they they might treat you badly, but they're also kind of going to come good in the end somehow. <laughs> I think that's what you need when you're a teen girl. You need to know that ultimately it's going to be okay. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. We'll be back with Eva soon, but now it's time for my steal of the week. I've chosen Peter Hujar's Day by Linda Rosenkrantz. This is a sliver of 70s New York, a tiny delight of a book. A transcription of a conversation with the photographer Peter Hooja about everything he did on the 18th of December 1974. Featuring Fran Leibovitz, Susan Sontag, a lusty reverie and a succulent Chinese meal. It's published by Magic Hour Press and out now. Now back to Eva. A podcast I'm a very big fan of is Crushed with Margaret Cable and Smith. And I think it was Rachel Paris she was talking to. Oh, She's Margaret's absolutely brilliant. Um, oh, you should go on Crush. You'd be, I mean, don't don't go anywhere now. Stay stay on this podcast. Stay oh, with us. But you'd she's, be brilliant she's on so that. So good. But about being a screaming teenager. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, them both saying in their teens, thinking, "Oh no, if you're like one of the screaming, adoring crowd, you've got no chance. Even if you're screaming in your heart, you've got to like stand at the sidelines and play it cool." <laughs> and I suppose I was thinking about how. As a teenager reading, what I loved about fancying people in books is it's such an intimate relationship and you can pretend it is sort of just you and them and you're not. Yes. You can yes. all, there can be lots of you screaming um, yeah. about the same people in the same books, but it's so sort of private. I love the, the kind of, the sense of communion of coming together and you all, you know, get carried away, but also having that really intimate space where it's just you dreaming when you read. Completely. And actually, this is this is going to make me sound very strange, but but I did um, I did theology A level, and and I found one of the reasons that I did it was because I found I found Jesus as a central character in the you know in the New Testament, unbelievably sort of compelling, and you know all this. I'm just trying to think which gospel it was now, creaking back through the, through the years. But lines like, you know, and came Jesus forth wearing the purple robe and the crown of thorns. And Pilate said to them, behold, the man. And I remember thinking, that's a man. <laughs> that's like, you know, that's how to write a man into, into, a, into a story. And so, yeah, I mean, I think anything when you're a teenage girl, when there, <laughs> maybe this is completely wrong to be saying this, but when you feel like there's there's a man in the room that no one can take their eyes off. I found that incredibly, well, obviously incredibly compelling. And then, you know, I, I kind of hit teen at the same time as take that. So I was, you know, I was fully in the in the take that camp for a long time and would just go and see them wherever I could, whenever I could, all over the place. And still now we'll go and see take that and feel that incredible connection with an audience who who knew them at that age and are now you know, in their 40s and mothers and bringing their own daughters. It's just that that's an incredible sense of belonging. I have a strong response to both of those things. I don't know whether to start with take that or I, Jesus. I know, I, but... I feel like I sort of don't quite know what I've just said. I have, by the way, never said that before about Jesus. But maybe it's also because going back to the musicals, because of Jesus Christ Superstar, where he's presented as this rock god. So... You know, I've gone to see numerous productions of Superstar with my mates and you come around, you know, you come away going, oh, my God, Jesus was so hot. And thinking, 
that surely that's not the right way to be saying this but you know he has to be in that show he has to you have to understand why people are drawn to him well absolutely in fact when growing up in a very strict catholic household where jesus was sort of ever present and quite you know earnest and he was like you know just this sort of perfect perfect force he never did anything wrong was really great and was, even though you know god is love and jesus is love probably disapproving of you shaming you oh yes 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 wanted to do but the jesus in the bible the jesus that inspires this ecstatic devotion had to be a rock god had to be the sort of overwhelming charismatic force <laughs> in the end i think that's why superstar is such an amazing piece of work because it was I know I think lots of people have sort of said like what would happen if if Jesus was around now and what that what would that look like and what that would feel like and that really does answer the question yeah and I think I think also he was you know (laughs) the 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 whole concept of this guy who was welcoming in all the outsiders and welcoming in people who everyone else was saying what are you doing talking to you know prostitutes and and people who are you know and the poor and all that kind of stuff there's something very, I think there's something maybe particularly for girls when, when you, you know, do, when, when we were studying theology at that point in history, there was something about that that felt really appealing. Maybe it was also to do with being in an all-girls boarding school, so it was a case of, you know, <laughs> whichever man ha- you happen to be thinking about at the time. When one is a teenage girl and feeling all alone in the world, so I think every teenage person does at some point, and there's this guy who is making it his business to hang out with the outcast that's yes. me yes <laughs> thank you jesus uh yeah i mean <laughs> of course and actually thinking about the Ena, going back to ina blyton even to the really early days of reading and thinking about the characters that that you know the boy characters that she wrote that were that were unbelievably um sort of appealing to girls there's one in the naughtiest girl in the school Oh, who's Eliz- who becomes Elizabeth's friend. He is described as somebody who's, you know, kind of brilliant and green-eyed and sort of exciting. And, and she at first doesn't like him because she's too, he's too like her. But then they eventually become friends. And yeah, thinking back to... I think Ina Blyton was very good at doing that, oddly enough, with, with boys. And even though she's, she's perceived as being a writer who's, you know, Mary Towers and all those girls' school stories are all girls. But when she, when she did write about boys and you know maybe even in the famous five and the secret seven it's she's she knew how to do it it was it was interesting i'm really glad you brought that up because i did a little bit of um online digging googling um that's what we call it now isn't it um <laughs> am i right in thinking that you wrote a book about Enid Blyton? yes well it, well it was it was my first book was was a, a non-fiction guide to Ina Blyton's characters and it was just a kind of fun i i, I took it to a publisher who who said, oh, this sounds, you know, sounds fun, go away and do it. And the, but the problem was I was then researching all of this kind of pre-internet because I was probably 21 at the time. So it involved a lot of reading the books. I just kind of chose the main series I was going to do because she wrote so many books, it would have been literally impossible mm. to do all of them. But I, I went through the main series and documented pretty much every character. And I got my cousin Alex to help me and it was... It was so surreal because we'd be sitting around with piles of you know the wishing chair and he'd go have you done the windy wizard and i'd go yeah no don't worry i've done him i've just i've just done you know lord shout a lot from the wishing chair i mean it was the whole thing was completely surreal particularly when you got onto the magic faraway tree and all that lot because they because there were so many characters like the grabbit gnomes and and we just became totally obsessed with it and we we did this book that 
um, came out and had a very niche audience of obsessed Ina Blyton fans who I then did things like speak at Ina Blyton conventions, which was which was great fun. But you'd get people, you, you know, one one time I thought I'll do my top 10 Blyton characters and why. And then, you know, you went through your top 10 and someone would say, well, I just can't believe you haven't included Claudine, you know, from St. Clair's. Well, what, what's wrong with you? And be quite serious about it. And you think, oh, help, what have I done? What have I done? I've offended the Blyton, the Blyton fans. I would love to see who goes to an Enid Blyton convention. It's a surprising number of people and also quite a confusing demographic that you wouldn't necessarily expect. Yeah. Because it's tricky, isn't it? Because obviously now in 2023, you know, she is problematic, as we say, and quite difficult to talk about. But I think so many of us grew up with those books in a way they are your world when you're, you know, sort of under, because they're those books that you kind of, it's that gap between the books you were given and encouraged to read and you sort of your own independent reading and your yes, independent yes, choices. Yes, exactly. Because I never thought of Mallory Towers as being sort of especially feminine. And I'm thinking about how there are certain characters, like Gwendolyn and Mary Lou, who well, well, yeah, I mean, quite scornful of because of their sort yes. of less confident attributes well the interesting thing because there's actually been a recent tv adaptation of Mallory Towers I really liked and my son loved so I've watched it a lot and I've been thinking about Mallory Towers quite a lot because what I find slightly frustrating when Blyton's criticized particularly for this um for this for being only interested in sort of say the rich kids was that at Mallory Towers and in St Clair's the ones who win through time and time again are the ones who aren't rich the ones who come from difficult backgrounds the ones who have um, you know, in, in some ways a disability or a disadvantage. And even Gwendolyn, who is throughout all of Mallory Towers, she's the very, very spoilt, posh, unkind girl. Mm. And then right at the end, in last term of Mallory Towers, Gwendolyn has this terrible tragedy where her father, who she's been really unkind to because she wants to go to this very posh mm. finishing school in Switzerland. And Alicia says, let's hope it finishes you off nicely, which is one of my <laughs> favourite lines. And, and Gwendolyn has this terrible tragedy where her dad is taken unbelievably ill and he, she thinks he's going to die. And um, there's a brilliant line from Blyton in that book, um, which is something along the lines of, you know, Gwend- Gwendolyn felt that the breath kind of leaving her body like she couldn't believe this was happening. And it's a real powerful bit of, of writing. And what happens is that Gwendolyn then has to leave Mary Towers. She can't go to the finishing school and she ends up sort of having to look after her dad. And... I always think that, you know, readers who've gone with Gwendolyn throughout all this this time get this amazing payoff where she has this awful thing that happens to her, but she writes to the girls who are left at the school and, and they realise that she realises the error of her ways and they write back to her and they, they send her stories of what's been happening at school and it's kind of this very, very kind of rude awakening for her, which Blyton does, you know, quite forcefully, quite a lot in, in a lot of her work. And I feel like with Mary Towers in particular... It's the girls who, the underdogs, who succeed time and time again. Um, And that's one of the interesting things about her that I think gets sort of overlooked. Am I right in thinking as well? It's been a long time since I read them. Um, Minorityist Girl in the School, and that's, was it Whiteleaf? Whiteleaf, yes. And it's there's a sort of socialist system where yes. all the children run the school and make decisions sort of democratically, and they have these meetings. And that, so it's that's quite radical and quite progressive. Oh, I'm not I mean, saying so, that I agree so radical, with lots yeah. of the things she said, but I think that's a, an interesting. No, I agree. I mean, also, you know, as a person, I'm sure that 
there would be she she was a you know by all accounts a not necessarily the easiest person you know Blythe I'm sure and and you know obviously there 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 are problematic as you say um issues with what with what with her writing now but that particular idea in the naughtiest girl where if even if if you were sent 10 shillings by your mm. grandmother you stuck it in the pot and ever and it had to go around everyone everyone put their money in and then everyone got the same amount back she gave herself then the brilliant device of having you know plots where people didn't get hand their money in or you know somebody was was keeping the money to save up for a birthday cake or whatever and it was really interesting the way and, and the head girl and boy ran the school and the headmistress kind of sat there watching them but Again, that's very Blyson in the way that, you know, in the Magic Faraway Tree, the kids just disappear for days on end and turn up having been living in a tree for a few days. And their mum goes, great, you know, here's here's your tea and um, off you go to bed now. (laughs) Glad you've had a nice time. What are the books that you have read to your children or shared with them? And are there any that you're really excited about them reading when... When the time oh, comes. I mean, I did so. I've done so much reading to them, and luckily, it's paid off. And my daughter the other day, I was thinking, even if I've been, you know, a rubbish mother in other areas, she said, "You did read us a lot of books, Mum, when we were little." And and uh, you know, not saying I've been a rubbish mum, but you know how you always think to yourself, "Oh God, are they going to remember that I was, you know, late for this twenty five times in a row?" But um, I always started off with Beatrice Potter because why wouldn't you start off with Beatrice Potter, the best thing ever, and also the darkness of Peter Rabbit. And, you know, the whole, the, the illustrations, the whole lot, um, absolutely brilliant. Uh, and my, my son particularly wanted that over and over and over again. So I did, went from Beatrice Potter to Shirley Hughes, another complete legend. Um, and then Jill Murphy, who I was obsessed with The Worst Witch, absolutely obsessed with Mildred Hubble as a style icon and um, got them all into her. Oh gosh, recently... Catherine Rundell and Ruth Toppers, which is completely brilliant, and I love her. And um, I read for the first time, which is a really bad confession that I hadn't read it before, but The Secret Garden, which I just cannot believe I didn't know, which is just one of the best books of all time, children's or otherwise. Um, I think completely and utterly brilliant. Speakily of just talking, um, we have, um, I think and this goes out, she probably would have been on the podcast. Um, Tessa Hadley is a very big fan. And we're oh, talking really? about how, oh, how brilliant. What a formative book that is. And how Mary, one of the first characters I met who wasn't good and wasn't likable and was sort of cross and bad-tempered. But why wouldn't she be when she yeah. you know, had such a dramatic uprooting? Yeah, I mean, that she is she is superb. It's the whole thing of... That you know the whole idea of the garden symbolizing what they're going through, and Colin is such a fascinating character, and it's also a bit spooky at the beginning because you don't know who he is or what he is, and the whole emerging garden thing is that writing is up there in my view with the absolute best, and also I think titles are so important when you're reading to kids. Like, is there any better book title? I do not know if there is than The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, but I had. I had a hilarious scenario, bit of an aside the other day, where my son said, um, who did that song um, Dancing on the Ceiling? And I went, oh, Lionel Richie. And he went, oh, what, Lionel Richie Wardrobe? (laughs) He thought that was the name, which was so funny. Deadly serious, Lionel Richie Wardrobe. Uh... But (laughs) I will never be able to think of the book or the man in any other way. (laughs) So good. 
But what a brilliant, I mean, what a brilliant title. I think titles have always been, and that's why I get in a total flap choosing my own titles because you just want it to, to get it right. And, and you can get in a real title tailspin, can't you? Thinking, oh, it's got to be right. Should it be short? Should it be long? You know, oh, it's just, yeah. A nerdy fact I believe I know, correct me, this might not be true. This might be an urban myth, but I believe, don't cry for me, Argentina. The original title was It's Only Your Lover Returning. Yes. That right. Oh my gosh, you really do know that song. Completely correct. Isn't yes. that creepy? <laughs> but I know that, that is, that is that. no, that is brilliant that you know that. Yeah, and that goes to show again how you know how important a good title is because you know if it had been called that my dad always says it may have sunk without trace but then don't cry from argentina is is used as a catchphrase you know i mean the other day obviously you can imagine with the football it's wheeled out time and time again it's um it's a good title and i've always kind of known in my head how brilliant titles when when they work in fact speaking of children's books my first ever book that I remember being obsessed by and I must have been about five or six was called Phoebe and the Hot Water Bottles and it's pretty obscure my mum's partner found it for me the other day on on eBay and I was rejoicing because it's it's seriously obscure but it's brilliant about a girl called Phoebe who is desperate for a puppy and for some unknown reason keeps on being given hot water bottles by her dad and they live together with no mum and he runs a shop and then one day and she takes her hot water bottles for walks as if they're dogs. And then one day um, there's a fire in the shop and Phoebe puts out the fire by emptying her water, water bottles into the fire, puts out the fire. And um, her dad is so delighted by this that he gives her a puppy as a reward. So it's just the most perfect story with amazing illustrations. Uh, and did you just say that a little while ago that your dog was with us with a hot water bottle? Oh, my gosh, it's come full circle. He is. He's now asleep on the bed, but he was... He was rampaging around the room with a hot water bottle. It is as Phoebe foretold. As Phoebe foretold. I love that. That's so funny. So this could be everything, which I love. Um, It's a really gorgeous, evocative title. How did you land on that? Were there other versions of it or did you know I mean, I've, I've got to confess that I didn't even come up with that title. It was a line in the book that was picked out by another person reading it because I had other titles that I... Because, you know, sometimes you have a a title you're working with and you think, oh, I'll change it. But then I became attached to that title. Then I came up with another one that wasn't quite right. And then in the end, it was someone else. And I'm very grateful. Hilariously, when I was writing this, the book that my uh, my partner slash boyfriend, whatever you want to call him, was was working on. um, He was working on adaptation of David Peace's Red or Dead um, for stage which is about um, Liverpool Football Club, pretty much. It's a, it's a history of Bill Shankly and Liverpool. And David Peace's writing style um, slightly got in my head. So I feel like he's a little bit, he's a little bit in this, which is hilarious because he's, you know, about as far from this book as you could possibly imagine. But there's something about the kind of repetitive style and um, the obsessive style of um, Bill Shankly and David Peace that's in there. And I said, I wrote a letter the other day to someone saying, I think I've written a book that's like, David Peace and Betty Boo had a baby. <laughs> oh, like, I love that. Because it's also got that slightly kind of upbeat, sort of early 90s rap feel at certain points where it kind of riffs off in another direction. I th- and maybe that's why that is such a perfect time to to set it in, because I think sort of, you know, before Britpop, and as that's so why I'm, I'm 37, so I was too young for 
Acid House. And by the time yes. I found out about Acid House, the Venga Boys were the music oh, of the day. Yeah. So, Come on. But that's what I really wish I'd been around for. And my friend Cheryl Garrett wrote a brilliant book called Adventures in Wonderland, which is oh, yes. a history of Acid House. She was the editor of The Face. Yes, yes. Is that right? Um, and I don't know if you read it, but it's really... That's, really been on, that's been on my list for a long time. I've got to go and get that one now. Yeah, it's it's the, there's something about the 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 early nineties pre Britpop music that it was very weird because when when I was writing, I listened to the Top Forty countdown, which I managed to find with Bruno Brooks, literally doing it in real time. I found it online. You could actually still listen to the the entire Top Forty being counted down. You know, with like and it's a non mover at number five for Roxette or whatever. And I got myself into a state where I was almost, it was almost like I was so back in 1990 that I was kind of going, oh, what is going to be number one? Where I sort of knew that it was going to be Sacrifice by Elton John. But I kind of went so back in time. And the pop of that time was really strange. I mean, like you got kind of a huge mix of much older artists, really young up and coming artists, kind of sowing the seed for the beginning of Britpop with like the Happy Mondays and that kind of thing. But then you know, covers for, used used to get big net records that become number one because the advert was huge, like the Levi's ads at that mm. point in history. If you, if your song was, was going to be covered by someone for a Levi's ad, it was a guaranteed number one. And that kind of feels sort of extraordinary now. Yeah, I don't know, like, when was the last Levi's advert on TV? I remember that being a real, like, a moment in yeah. an event. They, I, I just don't know. It feels like something that, and in that in that kind of late eighties, early nineties time was really big, and that's why in my book, um, not you know, spoiler alert, not not trying to give anything away, but there's a a boy modelling um, for for jeans which aren't actually named, but you kind of feel like I could, could totally imagine kind of him leaning up against the fridge in a pair of in a pair of Levi's, and yeah, they, yes. that, that was huge at that time. Yeah, that I could talk to you for oh, absolutely gosh, we've come ages, to the end. but. <laughs> I am going to have to ask some final questions. I'd love to hear about um, anything you're excited about reading on the pile, on the shelf, anything you've just finished oh, and loved. Oh, gosh. Um, well, I'm, I've just, in terms of stuff that's, that's coming out soon, I love Georgina Moore's book, The Garnet Girls, which I, which I, I had an early proof of. And I just think she's absolutely brilliant. And I think that's, that's a great kind of... Um, I, I love books that, that are about one family and that focus in on the differences between different family members. So I completely love that. Um, I just read it and I really love it. It's a really gripping family book. Oh, yeah. She's she's very clever. I think she's she's brilliant, George. And also Lauren Bravo's book, Pre-Loved, is completely brilliant. I love that. And actually, in my in my pile of stuff to read, I've gone back in time, surprise, surprise. I'm, I've just got into Anita Bruckner, which is ridiculously late because I read Hotel du Lac. Um, and that's set me off on her. Um, maybe kind of similar to the Barbara Pym thing, a, a kind of darker and more melancholy, but I loved that book. Look at Me is one of my all-time favourites. Oh, is it? where I've taken the epigraph uh, for Limelight. <gasps> oh, that's so exciting. Because I feel like she's one of those writers who who is maybe a, a little bit kind of either you're obsessed with her or you don't quite get what she's trying to do. And I and I can't believe I've come to her so late, but I read Hotel de Lac and I just wanted to underline every single line in it. I just thought, what a brilliant piece of work. 
absolutely incredible. There's something a little bit, I think, um, almost hallucinogenic about some of her writing. It's like overheated totally houses agree. and too so vivid true. colours and yes. everything being a bit too shiny and a bit off and that sort of weird post-war, confusing class people having money and not knowing what to do with it, but done in such a sort of a subtle way. Oh, such a I totally agree. It's, it is quite trippy. I completely agree. Her writing is... because, And you're kind of thinking... It's a bit like um, it's a bit like Marianne Faithful with Bob Dylan. You're kind of thinking, does she really mean that? Does she yes. really mean that? What's she trying to say there? <laughs> um, but yeah, so I can't believe I've come to her so late. I'm genuinely embarrassed about that. But oh no, I'm but what loving cantering through that. Yeah, that, to, that catalogue. There's loads of it as well. I know. Yeah. What a brilliant it couldn't, it couldn't thing to find someone you love. And in term, in terms of the ones that I would just come back to time and time again, obviously Nancy Mitford, and mm. the brilliance of 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 her and then also I Catch the Castle and um, that being the book that really all teenage boys should be handed to try and understand girls I think Which, and it's so funny because when I read Lost Art I felt like it was the sort of the Pursuit of Love I Catch the Castle intersection it had that oh, like, oh. well that that's the dream that was that was you know kind of what I was desperately trying to do and and a bit of Ruby Ferguson in there too mm. who who AJ Pierce mentioned about um, talking about the the early pony books and Jill Shimkana and all those ones, it was kind of a fusion of Ruby Ferguson and and uh, and Nancy Mitford and Dodie Smith. It's yeah, that that was the dream anyway. Yes. All books <laughs> about different kinds of yearning and different kinds yes. of love, and you can yes. yearn for horses and ponies and boys, but the yearning feels very yes. similar in every instance. And, and optimism and finding things funny in all of that, mm. crucially. Yeah. <laughs> I often think of bits of Nancy Mitford and just laugh to myself. Like in, I think it's in Don't Tell Alfred, where is it Basil, it's Basil, one yes. of his sons, and he's yes. an awful travel agent, and he's just hiding on the beach from all these people that he's brought to Paris who are furious <laughs> with him. And Uncle Matthew, who suddenly got very into going to cocktail parties, and he just, um, and Fanny hears this and is thinking, really? Yeah, sure. So and good. then sees him so one day just kind of staring at the fireplace, ignoring everyone with like a glass of water. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely brilliant. And actually, weirdly, Brideshead, even and Evelyn War. I mean, obviously, Brideshead isn't written as a comic novel, but there's still so much oh. comedy in Brideshead, um, which is another one of my go-to's when I'm kind of thinking I need to go back for something that I just loved and understand why I like reading slash writing in the first place I would go back to that I don't want this to end but I cannot think of a lovelier <laughs> book for this to end on than Brightside Revisited uh, either it's been such a treat thank you so much oh, for, being for me podcast. too thank nice you so time. much Daisy thank you huge thanks to Eva this could be everything is out now it's funny achily nostalgic touching and tender you'll fall in love with February and you might find yourself desperate to possess a boy London hat. Your book is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by Acast. You can find all the books that Eva mentioned on our page on bookshop.org. There's a book list and a link in the show notes. You can find us and follow us on social media at YBooked. Huge thanks to everyone who's given us a five-star review. And if you haven't done it yet and you've been listening for a little while, we'd really appreciate it. It's the best way to help people find the podcast and their new favourite book. We'll be back next week. But now we're going to play you out with Eva's song straight from the pages of This Could Be Everything. This is Indecisive by a mystic called Plato. See you next time.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 